0: I was an angel in the of evil Screwed up, scared doing anything that I
2: All right, yes, gods and monsters very much today, especially monsters. Um, you know, we remain fascinated by monsters. I think our understanding of them has changed over the millennia. And, you know, at a certain point we realize that monsters come from inside us. Um, so by the 19th century, Stevenson knows that Dr. Jekyll turns into Mr. Hyde. Uh, and, of course, that story is kind of carried forward these days by the Incredible Hulk, right? The Incredible Hulk is just Bruce Bannon when he's mad. Bruce Banner? Bruce Banner when he's mad. <laughs> um, so there's that kind of idea that we've got the monster inside us. Jung says this about the shadow self. Um Nietzsche says whoever fights monsters should see to it that in the process he does not become a monster. And if you gaze long enough into an abyss, the abyss will gaze back. So uh, monsters these days are probably more our projections, our externalizations of parts uh, of ourselves. Uh, But maybe they weren't always quite like that Uh, back in the old days. Maybe just monsters were monsters. Or maybe a monster is never just a monster. Here to help us figure all that out and much more, uh, Asa Simon Miniman, professor of art and art history at California State University Chico, and Natalie Haynes, a writer, broadcaster, and author who, whose newest book is Stone Blind. Uh, and who also, which a Stone Blind we should say, is a Medusa book. We'll be talking a lot about Medusa in the second segment here today uh, and also does a very addictive podcast called, I think, Stand Up for Classics, something like that. Anyway, it's really good. Uh, so you're both here. Um, uh, Asa simon Miniman. Uh, I'm going to begin with you. Uh, one thing that you've said is if you would understand a particular culture at a specific moment in history, try to understand its monsters. Tell us more about that.
1: Well, sure, and thanks for having me. Um, The thing about monsters is that they exist first and foremost for us to compare ourselves with. Uh, Humans are very bad at determining, you know, what we are, why we're here, what is our basic fundamental nature, our purpose, or whatever, just by looking inward. And so the way that we do this is we look outward at other things. We compare ourselves with all kinds of other stuff. We compare ourselves with animals and um there's been a lot of great work showing how humans define themselves sort of against uh, all of features of the animal world we compare ourselves against you know imagined beings but the thing about monsters is that's the only reason they're there we've called them into existence only to serve as points of comparison for ourselves so you know you can compare yourself with a wolf or a bear or something but they don't exist for that purpose they exist on their own they were there outside of us but a werewolf No, 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 they don't. We only made them exist so that we could do this process of trying to define ourselves against their uh, constructed difference from us.
2: So part of your specialty is the Middle Ages, the Middle Ages to be, you know, to generalize, the Middle Ages is steeped in a kind of Christian religiosity and uh, in a way that makes a lot of things allegorical and maybe a lot of things exactly the kind of comparison that you're talking about right now. plus faith in Christ, right? I mean, uh, are some of these monsters kind of an example of what you'd be if you didn't stay on the straight and narrow with the church in Christ?
1: Well, okay, so um, first off, just to acknowledge that um, Jews in the Middle Ages Hmm. made monsters, Muslims in the Middle Ages made monsters, Uh, there are medieval Chinese monsters, you know, and so on. So, But if we're talking about the Christian-dominated European world of the Middle Ages, yes, there's no question that just about everything, maybe everything, is filtered through the lens that Christianity provides. But um, Christians, Christian thinkers, really influential, some of the most important thinkers in the history of Christianity, um, St. Augustine of Hippo, who was a North African convert to Christianity, became a bishop who uh, uh, um, largely defined the nature of the religion of Christianity. He took time to write on multiple occasions about the nature of monsters. Uh, Isidore of seville uh he did the same he was a major um uh, early christian author sixth century-ish um he wrote one of the most influential books of the period he also takes time to talk about monsters they took them very seriously because um the medieval christian worldview suggested believed about that um That everything in the world existed as part of God's method of teaching humans his ultimate will for the universe. So Augustine says um, the earth is our great book. And what he means is looking at the earth is like reading the Bible. You can read every word of it, not just the big overarching themes, but every piece of it, they believed, had some kernel of the, the, you know, sort of vast divine truth. And so he says, well, why are there monsters? And his answer is, well, they must be there to teach us something. And this is, um, he tells us the etymology of the word monster. Modern English monster comes from the Latin monstra, which he says comes from a verb, demonstrare, which means just what it sounds like. It means to demonstrate or to show. So God called these things into existence just so that we could learn things. Um, and so he says, you know, we know it goes against the laws of nature for a person to have the head of a dog. But that doesn't matter. God is doing this. He puts these things together. These things actually exist. They're called Um They exist in the world so that God can show us specifically that he is outside the laws of nature. He created the laws of nature. He is not bound by them. So the existence of monsters for Augustine, for example, was a way of showing the absolutely infinite nature of God's power. So... It's this monster, but it is uh, uh, has packed inside it. They think uh, this explicitly Christian message.
2: Right. Uh, by the way, my apologies for adding a syllable to your name. I was just <laughs> told I did that. Uh, it's Mittman. But um, so, um, so yeah, just very quickly. So another thing, and and I think um, Natalie's going to want to get into this too. But one of the things that monsters, like a cynocephalus, a dog-headed person, can do <clears throat> is to otherize um somebody else right so uh somehow or other if you're uh if it's the crusades and 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 you want to uh throw some shade on on muslims uh, you what you associate them with one of these monstrosities
1: well yes absolutely and um it's actually slightly more complicated and maybe pernicious than that which is to say um you were saying that we're aware that the monster is you know inside us and we kind of externalize them in your intro to the segment Mm -hmm yes they are internal and so one of the things that people do is they take or cultures do it you know sort of societal level they take fundamental points of anxiety and they push them outside of themselves stick them on other people and then declare those other people are the bad ones and so one of the very common tropes we can see for the monster rising of other actual groups of people are places of particular anxiety so for example muslims have generally held this is obviously not universally true but was believed to be more or less universally true by christians in the middle ages have a dislike of dogs didn't keep you know europeans love their dogs they're inventing all of these breeds of dogs at this time they're letting their dogs sit on the table while they eat dinner the whole thing they're very into their dogs but muslims say dogs are unclean animals okay so here's a group that christians are saying are these terrible semi-human things but they're telling us that, you know, they're telling Christians that um, that dogs are filthy animals and only somebody filthy would keep them in their home. So what do Christian Europeans do? They say, you think our having dogs is filthy? No, you people are dogs. Right. And so they take the the thing that they are being told they shouldn't do and pushing it out onto Muslims. They do a very similar thing uh, with pigs and Jews. Right. Jews um, follow kosher laws, do not consume. The flesh of pigs pigs are considered to be unclean animals right many people europeans pig was one of the main meats consumed right so what do they say they don't say we're doing the wrong thing we are somehow um you know unclean people because we eat this thing they say no, no no those people who claim they don't eat pigs then they go on to list all these horrifying claims that they made about what Jews were actually doing with pigs, scatological things, sexual things, and whatever. And so it's a way of taking those anxieties, especially when another culture is poking you about your behavior, telling you that you are the ones that are wrong, taking those anxieties, pushing it back on the people who make you feel bad about yourselves, and then that allows you to deplore it, um, uh, uh, denigrate it, and ultimately, of course, also try to exterminate it. So there are real serious consequences to these things.
2: Right. So, Natalie, um, uh, first of all, um, I really do enjoy your podcast quite a bit. Uh, Oh, thank you. uh, Natalie Haynes. So, you know, Asa was just talking about Europeans and how they love their dogs, and they breed new dogs, and they create new dogs. And, of course, that's going on today, uh, and people will proudly tell you that they just bought a Bernadoodle, you know, which is a Bernese mountain dog and a poodle, you know, and and they paid $5,000 for what used to be a very unfortunate accident. Um, But, I mean, the Greeks are doing this already mythologically, right? They are taking one thing and merging it with another. Talk a little bit about these uh, chimera or or these, you know, Greek merger monsters.
3: Yeah, no, you're absolutely right, of course. I have to be honest, for me, the Middle Ages is astonishingly late. (laughs) That's
2: basically (laughs) modern history, as far as
3: I'm concerned. It might even be current It was just
2: right before the the Beatles came was the Middle Ages. (laughs) It's
3: it's, It's all one time. As soon as the Romans leave Britain, I've got nothing left. So, Um, I I, I was gonna say I don't make a habit of arguing with Augustine of Hippo, but I do occasionally because I don't think that the word monster, uh, monstrum in Latin, comes from uh, a longer form of the word. I think it comes from monera, to warn. Um, And so monsters in ancient Greece tend to be something which serve a a sort of an explanatory purpose for something that otherwise you couldn't understand given the limitations of things you can work out. So for example, um you can't necessarily understand how sometimes a you know a ship is sunk in a a broad ocean so you create the monster charybdis this sort of mysterious whirlpool that can swallow a, a ship whole because it explains the otherwise inexplicable having a random universe is still really stressful for us that's why people still read their horoscopes today right even though we can find explanations for a lot more things we're still quite anxious and we like an explanation and i guess one of the interesting things about Gorgons, of which Medusa is one, but there are three in Greek myth, um, is that they probably represent a sort of more nebulous fear that we have of the natural world. So if we look at the earliest iterations of them, they are called Gorgonea um, or Gorgon heads. And they tend to have very, very wide mouths like the Joker and a, a lolling tongue, which conveys that the mouth is open and can the, the creature can make a noise. And there are lots of different ways of trying to derive the name of the gorgon, um, but it may well come from thunder, that terrifying sound of a storm which you and your Bronze Age home can't hope to escape from with any real degree of likelihood. Right. And then there are lots of other wild animal elements, natural world elements to the way gorgon heads. Are created. So the most obvious to us is the snakes for hair. Well, snakes are incredibly dangerous in ancient Greek. Ask Eurydice. Oh, you can't. She gets bitten by a snake and now she is dead. Um, <laughs> They tend to have, if you have this big mass of, of snaky hair, it resembles maybe also a lion's mane, something like that. Something else that's obviously dangerous. Um, The earlier versions of gorgon heads have tusks often, um, tusks pointing up and down. So they obviously recall wild boar, which again are incredibly dangerous. Um You could look at the life and uh, early death of Adonis, lover of Aphrodite or Venus, if you prefer your goddesses, Roman than Greek. Um, He dies from being gored by a boar's tusk. So, Gorgons probably represent a sort of nebulous fear of the world around us. And then they are put into these Gorgon heads, these sort of manageable talismanic forms and you find them in liminal spaces on doorways for example or on the walls of temples where it looks like they are serving two functions one is to be scary like monsters are but the other takes us back to that latin verb monera the other is that they are apotropaic in other words they protect us so they protect the people inside the house and scare away people outside the house if you put it on your door
2: so, um, by the way, I mean you can ask Eurydice. You just have to go to a slightly different place. Uh, if you want I to mean, she's already things. been
3: nearly here twice. I <laughs> yeah. think you're honestly. I think you're stretching her patience further than it'll go. But give it your best shot. I know there's a whole Broadway, <laughs>
2: there's a whole Broadway musical about this. Um, wasn't it great? Yes. It wasn't
3: Hades Town wonderful? It was I just great. loved
2: it. So, um, Asa, you know, one of the things that puzzles me also about the, okay, so the European uh, Middle Ages, the uh, Christian-infused um, uh, impulses there is, first of all, we have these bestiaries, right? We have these kind of illuminated mm-hmm. books that attempt to catalog all, all kinds of beasts, except that mm-hmm. they, they don't confine themselves to the work of Linnaeus or something. It's like mm-hmm. uh, there's all kinds of <laughs> things that don't actually exist. What's the impulse driving that? What's going on there? Well, um-
1: So uh, uh, I should note Linnaeus himself, Carlos Linnaeus, the guy Mm. who gives us Linnaean taxonomy, Mm. when he's doing it, he includes creatures we now know to be mythical, so did not end with the Middle Ages. Mm -hmm. Um, So one important thing to bear in mind is that they don't divide things the same way we do. Mm -hmm. Uh, So they didn't have a, these are real animals, these are mythical animals kind of divide. And so the same uh, Texts that would tell us that there are dragons also tell us they fight with um, elephants. Well, if you're in medieval Europe, is a giant lizard fundamentally less plausible than an elephant? Right? They're all equally sort of unknown and remarkable. Um, and when uh, Europeans start traveling further afield and seeing actual uh, remarkable giant animals elsewhere, they they do not because of this um invalidate what we would think of as these old myths so for example um marco polo travels all the way to china and he sees en route there um a rhinoceros and he doesn't say hey you know there's all these ridiculous myths about these beautiful unicorns they don't exist actually they must be based on this then he says instead people i have seen the unicorns And everything you've heard about it is a lie. They're really, really ugly. So instead of um, sort of verifying their old textual sources and image sources against observable nature, they fold observable nature into it. And the reason for this, I would argue, is that they actually, this is all pre-enlightenment. Your senses can deceive you, right? They don't tend to look at human senses as the be-all, end-all for determining truth. Truth lies in old books. Uh, And the reason for that is they think humans are getting worse and worse. Every generation is worse than the ones before. So Adam and Eve are created by God in the garden. They screw up, they eat the apple, they have sex. And because of that, every generation after them is more and more corrupt. Uh, And so we modern people could not possibly do things as well as ancient people did. They also seeing just about everything through the lens of monsters, declare that those ancient peoples were also monstrous. They were all giants. Um, And so we learn that uh, many uh, early medieval thinkers tell us people have been steadily shrinking over time as well as becoming sort of diminished, what, morally and intellectually over, over history as well. So they look back to the past as a time when the greatest people existed, but also a time when monsters were sort of abundantly uh rampant even those great people were in a sense monstrous to us um augustine the same guy who and i agree uh by the way augustine is wrong about the etymology of Monstra. It, it probably is monere, which is what Isidore tells us but uh same augustine he goes to the beach in north africa and he finds a thing he tells us is a giant's tooth um which probably what he's found is a a, a mammoth tooth um which look a lot like human molars and he says he's holding this molar And uh, that it's 100 times the size of a human molar. But he says, this shouldn't surprise us. It looks really old. And everybody knows that back in the days of the biblical patriarchs, everyone was a giant compared to us. And we know that in those days, there were also people who were giants to them, the great, you know, Og of Basham or whomever. Um, And so uh, he says, you know, it's totally understandable that there were people once whose teeth would be 100 times the size of ours, because those people must have been 100 times the size of us. And so their way of dealing with the observations their senses give them is to fold them into a pre-existing um, worldview rooted in a, a sort of more marvelous understanding of the nature of the universe than you know a, a modern scientific one might provide.
2: So yeah, and Natalie, I had wondered that, and I don't know how much we know about the Greco-Roman derivation of some of these monsters, but I would think there would be a lot of this kind of stuff lying around. What are the equivalent of a mastodon's tooth or the skeleton of some, you know, giant reptile? Do we think that that's a little bit uh, part of the composition of Greco-Roman monsters?
3: I mean, it seems pretty likely overall, uh, and especially given their great fondness for uh, hybrid monsters, where you have the you know, body of part of a man and then part of a horse in a centaur, for example, which we don't always think of as a monster, but I, I think there's probably an element of uh, of choice on our part <laughs> because centaurs seem kind of grand and they're in Harry Potter. <laughs> that doesn't necessarily make them not monsters in the same way that plenty of other strange hybrid creatures are. Um, But yeah, I think it's almost certainly the case that the the world around them, which would sometimes be really manageable and sometimes really wouldn't be, you would be looking for ways to explain that. And that's true both with monsters and also with gods, actually, since you mentioned them at the beginning. If you have to live in a world as ancient Greece was, um, prone to suffer earthquakes, and you can't possibly understand tectonic plates because nothing like that kind of scientific reasoning or viewing is possible then having an angry god who can slam his trident on the floor of the ocean and make your world shake is in a way it's a way of managing that generalized anxiety i think because it means that then you can take offerings to the temple of poseidon in the same way that you do for you know not being in a shipwreck because these things are so random and so terrifying that you need to establish some form of control even though it's illusory and I think often that's the case with monsters too. You find some absolutely baffling fossil. And what are you gonna do? Sit there and try and puzzle out that once upon a time there were dinosaurs. There are people now who don't accept that and they've got a lot more <laughs> science to negotiate with. So I think it's perfectly plausible that you would instead. The Greeks are both incredibly curious and phenomenal storytellers. So what? how could they possibly resist?
2: Right, so if you've got a tricky passage that's very dangerous to sail through, you kind of make up Scylla and Charybdis, right? Yes,
3: absolutely. Or wandering rocks, you know, the Simpligides, and there are an array, I think, two or three different types of clashing or wandering rocks that we find in the story of Jason and the Argonauts, and also in the Odyssey, um, where uh, eventually Odysseus, given advice by Circe, uh, decides to go via Scylla and Charybdis because the alternative is the clashing rocks, and there's no way (laughs) through that unless a goddess helps you through. So, Definitely the
2: lesser of two evils there. So, you know, I wanted to ask, Asa, about the profane as opposed to the sacred. In some, in other words, getting ready for the show, I I ran across, not literally, uh, um, something called a a bonacon. I think that's what it's called. And (laughs) and so it's it's this sort of ungulate, horned-looking thing. But its superpowers, it's poop, as far as I can tell. You know, if you're running after it, it kind of poops stuff out at you. And and I was wondering, is that another thing that's happening here in the Middle Ages is that as we begin to identify uh, a a domain that's sacred and ideally pristine and things like that, we start to put all the poop and the other nasty stuff over out there in Monsterland?
1: Oh, yes. Uh, The the Bonacan is wonderful. Yes, it's a big kind of bovine thing, and it has um, flaming deadly searing projectile poop uh, that it (laughs) blings at any who would uh, attempt to capture it or kill it. Um, Yeah, there is a lot of scatological um, content in the Middle Ages, and a lot of it shows up in places that you might not expect. So uh, in religious texts, it is, I mean, ubiquitous in marginal illustrations in the later Middle Ages, for example. Uh, And so we'll see there lots of figures defecating, urinating. We'll see all kinds of sexual um imagery or kind of implied sexual imagery including a lot of homoeroticism in these manuscripts um that a great uh, scholar michael camille uh really brought all, all this stuff out into the open and i think a lot of uh, a lot of what we see there is a response to the medieval christian kind of fear of or flight from the human body uh we are you know gross messes right um and, uh, you know, they want us to be flawless, luminous beings created by an all loving God. And so there's a uh, an anxiety, you know, different from the anxieties I was talking about before, but just about being, you know, embodied animal life. Uh, and so, yes, a lot of uh, monsters will have various, very, very bodily properties. Um, there's a lot in texts about them, about what they eat, how they reproduce, you know, the 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 really the workings of the body are definitely a source for uh concern. These kind of things they might have thought of as vile or um disgusting or, you know, somehow uh, as you said, profane, um are a major part, yes, of the construction of, but also I think appeal of the monsters.
2: Yeah, yeah. What well, yes, exactly I mean it's it's the Simpsons humor. Um, you know. All right. We have to stop uh, this segment right here. Thanks so much to Asa Simon-Mittman, a professor of art and art history at California State University at Chico. Uh, coming back with us uh, on the other side of this, Natalie Haynes and I are going to have a longer conversation about Medusa.
0: To my heart, it led you to the well. You combed out my mane. I'll wear your saddle and reins with all these stars at my feet. I'll stamp and tap the spring with my rider mount. I feel like spreading my wings, take to the sky like poetry.
2: That's Jessica Jessica Hoop's amazing song, Pegasi, uh, which I played because Pegasus is born from the neck of the decapitated uh, Medusa. Not a form of childbirth that we would recommend to most people, but uh, that's just the way things worked out there. Uh, here to tell us much, much more about Medusa uh, is Natalie Haynes. Or her most recent novel is Stone Blind, and she is the host of Natalie Haynes' Stands Up for the Classics. Um, so... Uh, Let's talk about Medusa. As you pointed out in the previous segment, Natalie, uh, she's uh, often uh, cast as a kind of lonely figure, but she's really one of three non-Chekhovian sisters. Uh, And um, uh, one thing that I learned... Uh, from you is that she's sometimes depicted as a monster. You talked about her in the first segment with her lolling tongue and her tusks. and But she's also sometimes depicted as a very, very beautiful woman who's happening to, ha- happening to have a really bad hair day that's going to last for millennia. Um, it's good. Can you talk a little bit about that, about those sort of two versions of her?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So the images of gorgons and of just gorgon heads too, um, Evolved through time in the ancient world. It's one of those things where, when we talk about ancient Greece, it's really easy to forget that that period is 2000 years long. So, you know, as far as we are from Julius Caesar, from the <laughs> beginning to the end of ancient Greece. And what happens in the evolution of Gorgons is that their earliest iterations tend to be the most grotesque, the most extreme, um, even in more ways than we would probably recognise, not just the snakes for hair, but the tusks, they're often also bearded, um, and so they are uh, certainly reminiscent of perhaps Humbaba in Gilgamesh, this idea of the the head, although he is a male head and gorgons are always female. And then during the fifth century BCE, so two and a half thousand years ago, Art, particularly in Athens, but in general because Athens is a, a such a huge player in terms of culture and, and trade, um, undergoes what we tend to call now the beautification project, um, <laughs> in which everybody who has sculpted or painted on a vase just starts to get a little bit cuter. It is a great time to be immortalized as a monster or a person on a vase painting. Because if you are a guy, you're going to suddenly find you've got really great pecs, really great abs. You look amazing. And you know that's because the fifth century has this theory that if you look beautiful on the outside, it reflects being a good person on the inside and vice versa, which is obviously a, a mindset we would shun now, I hope. Um, And so what happens is that Medusa goes from being this very strange sort of, as I say, a grotesque, quite animalistic um, figure to becoming more and more human. And this also happens to other female monsters. It happens to harpies and sirens. You know, you can see them getting lovelier and lovelier until eventually they're just it's like a cute girl with a cute bird body. Um, And so you can see. One extraordinary version of Medusa is on a hydria, or a water jug um, in the Metropolitan Museum in New York, and it shows Medusa asleep. And she just looks like a very beautiful young woman. She doesn't have snakes for hair. She's got incredible, perfect black ringlets. Um, And she is, you can tell she's asleep because her closed eyelids are represented with just two small curved lines. And she looks incredibly peaceful. And you can see earlier versions of her with, you know, a head full of snakes. By the time we get to Hellist, uh, Hellenistic versions of her, so second or third century BCE, there's one version on um carved into a stone, an intaglio. They tend to be called, um, which I saw for the first time only a few weeks ago, um, and I was so astonished by it. I shared it on social media because this version of Medusa has the most incredible really nice updo you know like it might be she she could be out of jane austen she's just got this beautiful neat tied back hair and there's like one maybe two very elegant sort of swirly tendril snakes coming down from this it's like are you going to turn someone to stone or go to a ball at netherton i have no idea which way this is going to go so they do just get well why not why not go to the ball and then turn everyone to stone um But yeah, she does get more lovely as time goes on. Um, But if you want to see a really good example of a sort of super elemental Gorgon, you should go to Corfu. Um, And there in the Archaeological Museum of Corfu, they have the most incredible pediment from the Temple of Artemis at Corsaira. Um, It's about 13 meters across, so the highest point of the pediment, which is where Medusa is shown is pretty high and I knew this because I'd written about it in a book called Pandora's Jar and I still didn't know what that would be like until I turned the corner in the museum and went (laughs) absolute delight because she's massive this version of Medusa is so big and she looks so strong you know she's got the incredibly strong muscular legs there's no suggestion that this is a human being she's got wings and um, ancient gorgons are usually winged and although the stone isn't particularly durable kind so a lot of it's worn away she has beautiful little feathers that we can still see and then she's flanked on either side she's got this incredibly strong stride it looks like she's running to us she's cycling her arms and legs but she's probably being depicted in flight that's probably how um how flight is shown Um, and this version of her she's got the snakes for her she's got this incredible belt of twisting paired snakes which just makes her look incredibly fashion conscious quite aside from anything else and my absolute favorite thing about her is that we're told by Pindar, uh, a fifth century, early fifth century um, Greek poet, that Medusa is euparu is the Greek, she's got beautiful cheeks, And then this version in Corfu, she has got these gorgeous kind of chubby cheeks as she's running, you know, her mouth is wide again. Um, And you can see these little dimpled cheeks. It's like, oh, that's just the cutest thing. She's just like Pindar says. And she's flanked on either side by her offspring, as you mentioned, Pegasus, the winged horse on one side, Chryseor, the golden giant on the other side. He very rarely gets gets any press. I think it's just not as cool as a winged horse, I guess, uh, <laughs> you know, these things. Happen. I mean, you'd think being a golden giant would be great, but apparently it's really second best. And then just to add to the sense that she belongs with these um, wild animals, the, the temple, as I say, was to Artemis, who one of her many roles is Potnia Thera, and she's the queen of wild creatures. Um, and this version of Medusa is flanked both by her offspring, but also by leopanthers, which are lovely kind of half lion, half panther, wild cats big cats. And they've got gorgeous swirly fur if you get to see the the uh, sculpture in real life. It's absolutely breathtaking.
2: So can we just un- unpack Medusa a little bit here, uh, both in the the way she's uh, thought of and, and what she maybe means in antiquity, and also the, the work that you did to sort of think through Medusa's reality a little bit more internally uh, as you worked on your novel. But let's start with them. What's going on here? I mean, it seems pretty obvious that we're otherizing women to a certain degree and maybe we're also exploring some ambivalence we might have about women if uh, Medusa is really beautiful but she's really incredibly dangerous that's one set of messages if Medusa is just this balrog type monster that's been around forever uh, and, and exists basically so Perseus can cut her head off uh, that's another set of messages I, I don't I don't know I don't know how much you want to psychologize uh, Greek mythology but but what do you see there
3: well, first of all, we have to remember that it, it's not the case that she is a monster for Perseus to overcome. That's how we like to tell stories right. in the modern world. And indeed, we have done for a long time. But Gorgons and Gorgonea exist for a long time before Perseus appears in any source at all. So actually, it's much more likely that he is invented to give a reason for why all <laughs> these strange heads, which eventually acquire strange winged bodies, Are separate from one another. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So somebody's gone, well, we've got a lot of heads from Gorgons, and we've got some Gorgons. So I guess one of them must have been decapitated. Who do you think did that? And then Perseus enters the story. Mm -hmm. So it's very, very tempting for us to assume that the man in a story is there first. But in this instance, it's very unlikely to be the case. Um, And the other thing to bear in mind is that we tend to think of Medusa as dangerous. Um, She's the sort of iconic monster, I guess, of. Um, the ancient world. She is the the logo now for Versace. She's instantly recognizable because of the swirling hair. Um, I should say that that kind of mass of swirling hair, when, when Freud talks about the decapitation of Medusa, he thinks it must be a metaphor for um, castration because obviously as far as Freud is concerned, it's always all about his body parts. Um, but it's worth bearing in mind that that kind of mass of of hair. as you, Whenever you see a kind of writhing mass of snakes, a labyrinth, anything like that, where it's not sort of neatly ordered, it's usually now taken to be symbolic of women's pubic hair. And therefore, it's got absolutely nothing to do with Freud. But reliably, he makes it all about himself. Um, but she isn't, in fact, dangerous in the ancient world. She's dangerous after she's been killed. But I think we would all agree that that's really not the same thing at all. Mm. Because when she is alive, when she has agency She doesn't kill anyone. I've spent years trying to find a source where someone says, and then Medusa opened her eyes and deliberately stared at a person, and then they died. But there isn't one, at least not one that I've been able to find, and I've been looking for a while now. Um, Instead, of course, we think of her as she's told to us in Ovid's Metamorphoses, the longest form version of this story to survive to us from the ancient world. Um, And in that version of the story, once he has killed her, Perseus uses her head essentially as a weapon of mass destruction. Mm -hmm. He uses her to kill, you know, not one person, but a a whole island full of people at one point. Uh, He'll kill titans and giants. He's completely carefree in the way that he turns people to stone.
2: We should mention that Um, Perseus, in kind of a crap move, uh, decapitates her while she's asleep. I think he uses his shield, uh, the reflecting surface of his shield to see what he's doing because he can't look at her. Yeah,
3: well, he doesn't need to use his shield. Although there is a vase painting where he does do that, a gorgeous vase painting, where she's shown, because the shield is concave, this is one of my very favorite things of all ancient art, the head of the gorgon that he sees the reflection of in his shield is upside down because obviously someone's checked with a spoon that that's what <laughs> happens to a face. And you look at it, it's just my favourite thing. Imagine the person who commissioned it being like, dude this is upside down, I don't know what to say. But happily I'm sure everyone was fine. But yes, the certainly that Metropolitan Museum, Hydria, um, which is one of the most sympathetic depictions of Medusa in any time, I would argue, Um, it shows her asleep and that part of her story is crucial, certainly a bit that I played with very carefully in in Stone Blind because this notion of her being dangerous um, or a threat to us, I find it really hard to explain through any reason other than gender. You know, there's another character in Greek myth who is capable of turning you to an an animal object with just one sense and that's Midas who can turn you to gold by touching you. And we spend a lot of time when we talk and think about Medusa thinking, how do I stop her turning me to stone? I'd have to use my shield, I'd have to look at the reflection, I'd have to do this, I'd have to do that. When we think about Midas, we tend to think, what would it be like if everything I touched turned to stone? Right? Nathaniel Hawthorne was so sympathetic to Midas that he he invented a daughter for him so that he could turn her to stone. It's called fridging, for those of you who aren't au okay fait with the way boring male authors create female characters in order to kill them uh, so that a man has a reason to do a thing. Um, but. It's. I find it fascinating that we view Midas from the inside and Medusa from the outside. Right. Because In other I words, can't see yeah, the, a distinction between them.
2: Right. It sucks to be Midas, but it sucks to look at Medusa at the uh, wrong. Exactly. Moment, so, and um, you know
3: why would we make that distinction? Doesn't it suck to be Medusa if you if everything you look at turns to stone and you've never turned anyone to stone? And as I say, I can't find a source where she does. Then an ancient source, I should say, where she does. Then that must mean you never get to look at anything or anyone you care about. And that sounds to me like a terrible, terrible punishment, not a power.
2: So uh, I would be remiss, uh, you know. We've talked about the the great ancient texts. But uh, there's also the great modern text, uh, and that, of course, would be the 1981 film Clash of the Titans. Absolutely uh, would. <laughs> I, know, I know it's been a big influence on you. That's the only reason I'm playing this clip, but we will just play a little bit of, of this. We're going to see here. Perseus, played, of course, by the great classical actor Harry Hamlin, uh, fighting Medusa. <laughs> So I'm not gonna belabor this, but it's sort of interesting that you know these old stories uh, still have a tremendous amount of power. Um, that movie produced, among other things, kind of a catch, catchphrase, release the Kraken, which I don't even know if you know this, but in, in the US during the 2020 fight over the election results, the people who are trying to impugn uh, the the correctness uh, of our election results used release the Kraken as kind of their slogan. Um, I did
3: not know that. My favorite thing about that element of the film, though, of course, is that Kraken's, I mean, this Kraken must be really dangerous because it swam all the way down <laughs> from Norse myth to get to Greece and it's also traveled back about 2,000 years in time. So it's at least as scary as the shark and I don't know, Jaws 3 maybe. It's very, very persistent.
2: But there is something, you know, people love that movie. Um...
3: I I love that movie. Are you kidding? And this is my first (laughs) chance to say on American radio that I've been in love with Harry Hamlin since I first saw that movie at the age of about eight, I think, when it was first on TV. So this is my big chance and I'm taking it.
2: And there, um, there's a way in which all of these stories that you see in that movie feed really the landscape uh, of what we see today. You've already mentioned Harry Potter. There are the the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies. Uh, there's Star Wars. All of this stuff, all these monsters, uh, you know, can, they just kind of roll along and become other things. But we, we don't want to stop looking at them.
3: No, we don't. We are completely compelled to look at them. And in a way, of course, that's the thing about Medusa, which is so strange and difficult. You know, she is the original representation of fear of the female gaze. You know, Margaret Atwood once said um, that uh, men are afraid that women will laugh at them and women are afraid that men will kill them. Mm -hmm. And I think the, the story of Medusa is the most neat encapsulation of that distinction, that it's really all about power. And so if a, if a creature, a gorgon like Medusa, can kill you by looking at you, even though she chooses not to, she is terrifying. And that's, as you can see, what happens with her myth.
2: Well, Natalie Haynes, I think we have a lot more to talk about. I hope you'll come back at some point. Uh, The book is Stone Blind. It's a novel about Medusa from Medusa's point of view. Uh, And uh, the podcast is Natalie Haynes Stands Up for the Classics. Uh, I recommend both. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about the Yeti or maybe about kind of how there isn't a Yeti. That I am nothing new. There's so much
0: more than me and you But brother, how we
2: must atone Before we Got to go fast here because we screwed up the clock. I screwed up the clock. Uh, but thanks to Cat Pastor, our technical technical producer. Senior producer Lily Tyson uh, is the producer of this particular episode. We're now going to talk uh, about one more monster. Uh, a little bit more what they call a cryptid or part of cryptozoology these days. Uh, that would be the Yeti, the Sasquatch, the Bigfoot, uh, which uh, seemed to represent either a kind of a missing link idea. Or in the Middle Ages, there were all these illustrations of, of wild men uh, who represented some kind of transition between. Complete animalistic behavior and what passed for civilization. So we think about them, we talk about them, and we know that they exist from the nature documentary, Harry and the Hendersons. Uh, Here's Don Amici uh, explaining that they don't exist. This would be C1 cap. I'm
1: going to say this once. I'm going to say it's simple, and I hope to God for your sakes you all listen. There are no abominable snowmen. There are no sasquatches. There are no big feet.
2: All right. Well, here is Charlotte Lindquist to deliver essentially the same message, uh, associate professor in the Department of Biological Sciences at the University of Buffalo. We should say that while that's happening, of course, Harry is standing right behind Don Amici. Uh, However, you uh, had the opportunity to do some of the work that you really wanted to do, but kind of under the premise of investigating uh, the, the whole mythology and notion of the Yeti. Tell us about that.
0: Uh, Hi, yes. Hi. Nice to be on your your show. Um, So I'm a a biologist, right? I'm really particularly interested in evolutionary biologists. And one of the organisms I work on are actually bears. (laughs) Uh, And I find bears to be absolutely fascinating uh, animals, polar bears and brown bears being very close relatives. But brown bears are actually quite widely distributed and there are some areas uh where they're quite rare and, and endangered and we don't know much about it and one area is actually the Himalayan mountains so i'd like to start there because that's my interest entry into the yeti myth um because uh really i hadn't thought much about yetis or abominable abominable snowmen before i started, sort of sort of got pulled into this because there was uh, a previous uh analysis of all kinds of mysterious or purported uh, Yeti, uh, Bigfoot, Sasquatch, whatever samples around the world. And they found that some purported uh, samples from Bhutan and from uh, the Himalayas um, were somehow identified as perhaps even an unidentified or previous unidentified bear species or maybe even a hybrid bear species. And that really intrigued my my interest were there some unknown bear species wandering around in the at high elevation uh high altitude in the Himalayan mountains and that had been sort of confused with the yeti so that was sort of my my entry uh into this um so in that, and and yeah, in ahead. the process, I've learned a lot about the legend. I think it's fascinating.
2: <laughs> right. So in that area, there are places where you can see these kind of artifacts. Um, you know, There's a, a temple in northeast Nepal where there's this kind of football, half football shaped scalp that sits in a cabinet that's supposedly a Yeti. I think there might be a hotel in, in Kathmandu where there's a so-called Yeti skull there. So did you have things to test the mitochondrial DNA of that were purportedly maybe Yeti?
0: Yes, exactly. So we were able to get hold of uh, various different samples, uh, both from from monasteries where they had them in their collection. And they were very convinced that this, for example, was a a paw or a hand from a yeti, or this was a femur bone from a yeti that was found in a cave. And they were quite uh, convinced that these were certainly from their so-called yetis in the area. And then, of course, there's been a big interest in from the Western world, from Europeans, from mountaineers. And uh, so private collections, too. I, I even have seen pictures of a, 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 a stuffed a yeti, which was very, very interesting. Very interesting creature, if anyone has, has seen it. Um, we even got some samples from that, too. So we got a tooth. We got hair. So we got various different samples that had been claimed to have come from yetis. And then... We were able to uh, isolate DNA from all these samples. Um, And of course, that was the big reveal. What were they really? Were they something unknown? Were they some primate ape relative? Or what happened to uh, what we found out was that they actually most of them came from bears that are found in the Himalayan mountains and the Tibetan plateau uh, today.
2: And I've seen pictures of those bears. They're very shaggy, too. Uh, So that might help, too, right? Yeah,
0: Yeah, they're pretty shaggy. And bears, as we know, they can stand on their hind legs and they can be, you know, a little big and a little brute and a little scary. Uh, And they certainly can also produce pretty uh, large footprints in, in snow and in ice. So, I mean, actually, there has been sort of, I think, a long connection between the Yeti legend and actually bears in the area. And I think locally, a lot of the local names for Yeti, Yeti is just one name. There's lots of different local names for that sort of describe that legend. And oftentimes, if you translate it, it has something to do with bear, bear man or something that has to do with bear. Um, so maybe it, it, the legend came from some sort of respect from for the the, the, the the sort of the natural worlds and respect for bears and wildlife that, of course, can be dangerous, uh, but also maybe living in sort of association with that natural world and that sort of when Europeans started climbing mountains in in the Himalayan <laughs> mountains. Uh, got that a little bit confused, perhaps, with with what became then the abominable snowman. So you then think about it as some very large, tall, shaggy uh, creature with white fur, or or whatever it is. There's been lots of different interesting versions uh, of that uh, of that creature.
2: All right, we're going to have to go now. Unfortunately, this is a story that uh, deserves further explanation and exploration. Charlotte Lindquist uh, is associate professor in the Department of Biological Sciences at the University at Buffalo. Thanks very much for visiting with us today. Thanks to all of you for listening to the Monster Show. We'll be back with more shows as the week progresses.
0: Then you can monster monster mash, end you my graveyard smash.
1: You'll catch on in a
0: you can mong